All right, everyone, welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Mike Ippolito. I am joined, as always, by my quick-witted co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. <laughs> Mike, what's going on? Did you get a haircut? I didn't. I didn't, actually. No. Um, yeah. So I don't know where that's going from. I don't know. Your hair looks great today. You must have put some good product in Thank there. you. Thank you. You know, this is actually all natural. Would you believe it? Is it really? Would you believe it? It's all natural. I got this swoop going. Yeah, yeah. Find me up for that. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, my yeah. guy's name is uh, Anthony. I'll, I'll hook you up if you ever find your way to New York. Um, nice. That's yeah. so Brooklyn. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Now the question is, Tyler, are you are you feeling FOMO that you're not in Miami? Like half of our industry is down in down in Miami right now, hitting up eleven, uh, doing lots of questionable things, no doubt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How are you feeling about not being there? Yeah, it's you know I don't know I'm I'm torn. I have two kids, so like it's hard to leave when you have two kids under three. You're really like you know throwing your your partner under the bus if you leave for a whole weekend. So I yeah. figured I'd save myself the stress of that. Um, but yeah, I lived in Miami for two years. Uh, I, I forgot about that. Yeah. And yeah. I got my fill. And it's a very, it's such a weird place. Like no one goes out yeah. till like 1230 AM. Everyone eats dinner. It's very like European. It doesn't even feel like America. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, call me a cynic, but when I see these big industry conferences, I'm just like, this is an excuse for nerds to go to strip clubs. Let's just call this what it is. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, that is that is at the heart. That is what's really driving a lot of this here. So I will disagree uh, with that. Yeah, that's my take. So, all right, um, let, let's get to it. We got a big week. Uh, a lot of macro stuff. Been very quiet uh, in crypto and Bitcoin for a little while. So again, we're talking about macro this week, but. Uh, yeah, I think the big story is uh, payroll. Uh, so we had the jobs report that actually just went live earlier this morning. We're recording on Friday the 4th. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Underwhelming numbers. Um, the Fed has begun to unwind its holding, uh, his corporate bond holdings, uh, which is pretty big. Uh, these were obviously held in kind of a side vehicle outside of their uh, their traditional balance sheet. Um, active uh, Activist investor interest is picking up um, as a third uh, seat is being taken on the Exxon board. Uh, this is kind of part of a broader story about ESG concerns and the power of uh, index funds. Uh, and then finally, this isn't really a story, but Bloomberg put out this great article uh, measuring or comparing the wealth of millennials uh, to previous generations, specifically boomers and Gen X. And man, this just really hit it right on the head for me. Uh, we'll get into it, but I mean, it really is pretty jarring to actually see these statistics just get compiled. And, you know, they focused on like housing, student debt and average income. And I think the numbers really speak for themselves, but yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah. Can't wait to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with this jobs report. So, you know, the, the big story is that uh, jobs report have actually missed their estimates. Uh, so we added 559,000 new jobs uh, in the month of May, uh, which is not bad. Um, that takes our unemployment rate down to 5.8%. The problem is the consensus view from economists uh, was that we would add 650,000 jobs. Uh, and, you know, also, if you look at, you know, kind of the amount of jobs that we were adding in, in previous months this year, even uh, it's drastically uh, lowered or reduced. Uh, I think the big uh, the big number here to look at is 7.6 million. We still have 7.6 million fewer people employed than we did at the start of the pandemic, which is not great. Um, What's your take on this, Tyler? Like this, uh, this wasn't great news, but actually, stocks didn't react so negatively. 
So I'm curious to get your your thoughts. Yeah, you know, the dollar rolled over. You, you got to assume the market's looking at it, this as they are not pulling the plug on QE anytime soon. Yeah. Um, the taper kind of gets kicked out a little bit longer, I'd imagine. Their employment is what their big, you know, their, their big gauge is now. And inflation is less of a concern. They want the employment number down. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I think the market's anticipating right now with pretty much everything up after yesterday. Yeah, I think so too. I think this is, uh, you know, for me, it was kind of interesting to look at. So if you looked at, uh, you know, the way, so before the jobs report came out today, uh, ADP released their payroll numbers the day before. We were talking about this before this actually went live. Traders usually kind of look at the official jobs report to kind of uh, make trades. But uh, actually when the ADP payroll numbers actually looked really positive, stocks actually dipped on that move. And now that there was a miss in jobs yeah. and the official numbers, stocks are going up. Too much so data. So what's actually <laughs> too much data? Too much data. But it, it's like, look, I know that's kind of a small data point. But one thing that I think is interesting there is that, just like you said, it's kind of like a bad news is good news type thing, right? Because yeah. it's almost like if if unemployment was getting eliminated, jobs are coming back, the economy is roaring. What that means is the tenure starts to creep up. Um, and, you know, at some point, the Fed needs to kind of wean off the stimulus. And that actually might be bad for stocks. So this might be really emblematic of a good news is bad news uh, situation. So actually jobs coming back online could be bad for the stock market, which is kind of backwards uh, from what most people are thinking. You know, what's scary about this, though, and this is people have probably seen other takes on you know mainstream news, but the labor participation came out and it hasn't really gone up anymore it's at 61 mm. five and it usually before pre-pandemic it was at like 63.5 so we're not people are not coming back into the workforce you need to incentivize them probably with higher wages and here's another thing from uh e e ecri ecri uh that guy lakshman Accutan. that's his firm mm. but if you had less than a high school diploma, your employment to population ratio is actually going down. Meaning like people who have under a high school diploma are having worse and like it popped from pandemic lows, but now it's rolling over again. So we're getting into a place where, I don't know, if all this money printing is not helping the, the people that they want to help the most, then are we working into like sort of a UBI type uh, environment? You know, at some point, you know, if you're not employing those people without, you know, a high school degree, what happens? Do they just, they drop out of the workforce and become a drain on the system, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of, um, you know, kind of feedback from Republicans that, because there's this funny dichotomy that's going on at the later pool right now, right? Which is that unemployment remains elevated, right? From pre-pandemic levels. At the same time, you have all these businesses that are crying out about labor shortages, right? You have a lot of folks, uh, specifically Republicans, kind of talking about it's the unemployment benefits um, that have been extended uh, in many cases through September. You've got some states that are kind of starting to roll off those unemployment benefits early, like Florida, I think. Um, it's TBD as to whether or not that actually has an impact on getting people back to work. Mm. Um, I don't know. What's your What's your opinion on that? I think, yeah, I, I I'm I kind of see both sides. Where I'm not this yeah, hardcore Republican that's like, oh, you know, get rid of the unemployment benefits. I think 
the the wages need to rise enough where people will want to work really and yeah i i think that's sort of what we're dealing with here it's an inflationary it's that self-fulfilling inflationary process where you know you got to lower people into work the workforce and pay them a working rate you know a working wage otherwise they're just gonna take the unemployment benefits um you know it's it's funny i'm i'm not actually suggesting that this is the explicit directive from a policy um you know perspective but maybe one externality of these unemployment benefits is that you kind of are effectively raising the minimum wage Uh, because at a certain point, you know, you need people to work behind the counters at Chipotle and the coffee shops and whatever. And if people can make more by just staying at home, then guess what? You've effectively set the minimum wage based on unemployment benefits. And I don't know, maybe it actually is easier because the minimum wage for whatever reason is such a political issue. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I mean, you clearly cannot get that passed through like Congress or the Senate. So... Maybe they've just been like, look, this needs to happen. We're going to keep these unemployment benefits and businesses. You got to figure it out. You know, you got to get people back to work. I think that might be changing for our generation where it's like, when we look into the the millennial versus boomer data, I think you'll see that people need more money to live like a lifestyle that keeps people working in the system, you know? So, yeah, we can dig into that after. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that at the end here. I, I guess the big thing for me is like when, when you think about, you know, everyone, a lot of folks, really smart folks, even like Stan Druckenmiller, right? He got the pandemic pretty wrong, right? And there, there are two things that you need to get right when you're trying to predict where a market is going to move. you got to understand what is actually happening, which is step number one. And then you need to understand the market's interpretation of that, which mm-hmm. is step two. A lot of people forget about step two. Uh, So right now, it's pretty obvious, right? The economy actually is improving. We artificially shut down a lot of the economy. It is coming back online. The prints are going to look good, et cetera. The big question mark is how are investors going to interpret that data? And if you actually look at it, you you would immediately think, oh, well, this is good. Uh, The economy is coming back online. Unemployment is going down. Uh, GDP is probably going to pop back up. But guess what? (laughs) You know, if you use... COVID logic, which is all that stuff went in the other direction, stocks went up. And the reason why is because everything is trading on Fed stimulus, right? This is the most interest rate sensitive market we've been in in the last Mm -hmm. 50 years. So actually a lot of that stuff should be negative for stocks in the short term. I'm not gonna go out and say I'm predicting that, I'm just saying you should be considering that because uh, it's rarely just so obvious that all the numbers look good, stocks go up. Well, that I don't know. This is my whole problem with asset management now is you're not even just fundamental investing like does that exist anymore you're really playing like a everyone's playing a political piece and probably investing along their political lines as well at this point so i i don't know yeah we'll see yeah who knows man i don't know it's probably challenging no matter what generation you're in right like it never feels obvious, right? If it was obvious, everyone would make a lot of money. You know, it was in the nineties. It was like you had these secular tailwinds, and like growth rates were great. Like now we have slow growth rates, but like screaming stock market in this like Fed who is like blowing out money printing at a scale that we've never seen in history. So there's just like too many levers to pull. 
you could tell me what the economic data is five months from now, and I could I wouldn't even tell you where the stock market is. You know, like you could tell me the the numbers were great, and the stock market could be down forty five percent, and it'd be like okay, whatever. Yeah, you, you can only really play secular themes, and that's why like I stay so high level on these big macro themes. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's tough, right? Uh, if it was True. easy, everyone would do it. And yeah. Uh, okay. So speaking of Fed activity, uh, I do want to talk about. So the Fed has begun to unwind their corporate bond holdings. So if you remember back uh, when the pandemic was first kind of um, you know coming to markets and people were realizing how bad it was, uh, the Fed kind of broke a lot of their rules and said that they would actually move into the uh, high yield bond market, which was which was a really big step back then. Uh, so the way that that was actually structured, there was this vehicle that was created. It was known as the Secondary Market Corporate Credit Facility, or SMCCF. Yeah. I really have a way with words. <laughs> that uh, held $5.2 billion worth of bonds from companies including Whirlpool Corp, Walmart, and Visa uh, as of April 30th. They really needed help. Um, they needed so much help, actually, those walmart and yeah you needed to buy those bonds <laughs> yeah well we can get into that um in addition to that it actually held 8.56 billion of exchange traded funds uh, that held corporate debt such as the vanguard short-term corporate bond vanguard ETF. you needed to help um, vanguard too so basically this is kind of yeah sorry i'm coming I, I... <laughs> yeah uh, let me just let me just get through it and then we can then we can get to your, your take here but um Basically, this the MCCF's corporate debt holdings, they're distinct uh, from the $7.3 trillion of treasury debt and agency mortgage-backed securities, which are on the Fed's balance sheet. So basically, they actually stopped buying these assets on December 31st, and now they're thinking about unwinding. They were very, very careful to note that this does not constitute tapering. This is in no way related to thinking about tapering, although the Philadelphia Fed Bank President Patrick Harker has said uh, that it may be time to think at least about tapering out 120 billion in monthly corporate, or sorry, uh, treasury bond and mortgage-backed securities purchases. So, what do you make of all this, Tyler? How, I, I think I know where you're going to go, but what? Is well, this was the Lacey Hunt saying they crossed the Rubicon, right? Like this is where this is not legal. It wasn't legal. Jeff Gunlack said that it's not legal under their purview to do this stuff. And they're unwinding it now, I guess. Right. But it seems like pr it was pretty small in the first place. I think they did it and were probably like, uh, what are we doing? So the numbers relatively – here's a great stat Tommy Costa hit, hit us with. is he, he wrote on LinkedIn, it's like they just did their largest purchase of U.S. Treasuries in almost six months. You think they're going to taper? They did $32 billion last week in, yeah. in Treasury purchases. So like – I don't think they're going to taper yeah. anytime soon, even though this is a tapering of these the specific uh, facilities. Yeah. So I'm glad. Uh, so Tavi's actually coming on the podcast, um, him, him and Teddy Preval, uh, yeah, next week. So I'm excited to talk to him about that. But yeah, I think that's, I think the big story here is this, is this story of uh, tapering, right? Because you kind of have, do have these conflicting signals, right? Um, there still are a lot of signals right now that, liquidity is still needed out in the market. I don't know how that's possible, but you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, there still is a need for more liquidity. At the same time, uh, QE seems to be running its course. Uh, there, there are signs that we literally don't have the amount of deposits needed to support that program. Um, and at the same time, the government is talking about unwinding its position in corporate debt. So you're actually kind of getting these very conflicting 
signals at this point. And generally for me at this point, when the Fed says we are not thinking about doing this, kind of means they are thinking about it, right? I'm not gonna like yeah. try to read the tea leaves here, but I don't trust them when they say that. Uh, so I, I don't know I what think to that's make what makes investing so hard now um, is you're you're juggling like all these different incentives. And there's so many players that there right. used to not be. When it was a it wasn't a globalized marketplace and there wasn't an extra political person. Like the Fed owns thirty five percent of the treasury market. The Bank of Japan owns I wrote this in a right. note this week. The Bank of Japan owns almost forty five percent of their bond market, which is the biggest, you know, highly indebted country in in the world. They own forty five percent in Japanese government bonds did not trade for a day last week, which basically means like no investors want to trade it anymore because they own 45%. The U.S. Treasury, the Fed is at 35%. We're getting there. So like we're, we're, we're already in like a soft yield curve control there. type atmosphere and we need to finance right. like a monster deficit. So it's, pro it's probably just going to be here to stay until we hit 45% and bonds stop trading. Like Russia sold out of all their treasuries, you know? Oh my God, yeah. They're, they're uh, what was it that, it, they're kind of equivalent of a sovereign wealth fund, essentially moved out of all dollar denominated assets. Yeah. That's a big story. Big, uh, yeah. That and China's doing less and less. Like these are the, the waves where when Stan Druckenmiller says the U.S. dollar won't be a reserve currency in 10 years and Ray Dalio says it, that's probably why. Because everyone's like, yeah, I don't really think I like this system. I don't want to lend them my money. So, yeah. But you have the Fed buying $32 billion last week holding the rates down in to compensate for that. So, Yeah. You know, I guess the big question here uh, that I also think about is like yield curve control as well. And... I guess if you're the Fed, I mean, you just kind of called it, right? We're already in an environment of soft yield curve control. It seems very unlikely that the Fed would actually just come out. They don't really have much of an incentive to say, hey, uh, we are officially implementing yield curve control. Mm -hmm. It seems like, you know, they're really, this is an organization that's really, really used to working kind of the expectations channel, right? So it kind of seems like if they can continue to hint at things and get other people to do their, their dirty work, so to speak, they're not gonna come right out and say, hey, we're we're pegging you know, the 10 year, the 30 year or whatever to X percent. Mm. Uh, it seems like they're probably just going to try to achieve that without explicitly stating that that's their goal. And probably the, the balance that's going on in between the treasury, right? Kind of the fiscal spending and what's going on on the monetary side is they're kind of like, hey guys, you know, I know we got to spend money, but we can't spend so much money that we have to explicitly implement yield curve control. So let's kind of like spread yeah. it out a little bit. It kind of seems like that's what's going on. Kicking <laughs> right. with the can, right? Like they're they're politicians, I guess. The favorite yeah. move, the kicking of the sneaky. can. It's yeah, so it's been a good strategy for yeah. a while. Um, okay, let me ask you, what do you think? I mean, I guess this isn't actually that much supply coming onto the market, but what do you think uh, the unwinding of these positions has on the equity market in general. Uh, you know, as our friend Greg Foss loves to say, you know, if, if you want to understand what's going on uh, in the equity market, you got to look at what's going on at the the instrument that's actually higher on the capital structure, which is mm -hmm. debt, right? So for me, I guess, do you think there's demand enough to especially buy up uh, what the Fed is selling? If not, how is that going to impact equities? Yeah, if yields really rise, 
I think you get an unwind of the risk parity trade and everything revalues. Mm. Uh, yeah. I thought it would come sooner, but you know, they've, they've actually controlled the market quite well. And we'll just, they, yeah. I think what's happening is you're getting more and more negative real rates now. And that's why right. the legacy funds that invest in gold and silver, gold and silver have actually been doing pretty well lately because of that backdrop. Um, right. So that's what I think is happening is the negative real rates are going to really come out. Um, yeah. How conditioned uh, to negative real rates do you think investors are at this standpoint? Well, this is the funny thing. There's so many weird imbalances is you're accepting 0% in $400 billion of money market funds on the front end of the curve, which is essentially you're losing right. money against inflation sitting there. And I, I don't think, I don't think they really get it. Like I think the baby boomers don't understand what negative real rates are because they've only had things go up and have always had growth rates that are higher than inflation for the past, I don't know, 35 years. I think they're probably like, what the hell do I do with my money now that I have, I can't save, I'm losing money saving. So where do I put it? So that's what's sort of going in yeah. everybody's head. Like even Ray Dalio was like, I'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond now. And he just came to that conclusion, which means like the regular population who's saving will probably the next over the next year figure it out i'd imagine yeah so yeah i i don't know it's it's kind of complicated right because you know when you get to institutional finance right there are certain limits and mandates about what people can put money in and what they can't and i think we just saw this last week we talked about the reverse repo facility in the fed and actually um you know there's actually so much dollars people are putting so many dollars into banks that if they were to turn around and put park all that into money market funds, it would actually drive short term rates negative, which nobody wants. And that would kind of that's I think, right, the breaking of the buck, that's the screwing of the system mm -hmm. right there. Uh, so you've got all these people is there are just a lot of weird incentives, I think, yeah. going on right now. And, so, and I wrote on Wednesday, I think about Chase Coleman and Tiger Global. They're just they're basically a yeah. full-on venture capital firm trying to invest in as many startups as possible. And that guy's not dumb. I think what he's making, that bet he's making, is all that money that's losing negative real rates will have to funnel into future technologies and the future of what we're going to be using in five to ten years as consumers. And instead of playing yeah. in the value game, because... They won't be able to raise rates. They can't. So he's just going out super out in the risk spectrum and saying, everyone else is going to have to meet me here. And he's doing it as fast as he can, throwing checks after check after check in private equity growth. Yeah. I mean, has there been a worse time in living memory to be a long, short hedge fund manager? It sucks. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. There's some performing because they're, they're like levered beta. But like, how do you short... AMC or GameStop at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm talking about, right? Like if you, if one of your shorts can pop, you know, 500%, you have this weird, like decentralized internet army that's looking for <laughs> like uh, heavily shorted stocks and they're just trying to cause squeezes. Like, what do you even do with that? I don't, I don't know. And well, really, uh, you know, it's just, 
battle between centralization and decentralization. Yeah. At, at the end of the day is like those decentralized retail traders are are now going up against Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street and everyone that's like constricting the float of those stocks because they right. harbored all the economics of them for years and years and years and they can finally decentralization can now take advantage of their their growth and how big they are. I have, I have a question there. Is this even bad for Vanguard and and like BlackRock? Not they are holding AMC, right? <laughs> this is good for yeah. them, right? Oh yeah, it, it it juices their book. It causes more inflows. Their performance goes up, but it, it creates that Mike Green effect where you go. It's like the parabolic rise, the con, the convexity. The shares become way more sensitive to each incremental dollar, and it'll create a scenario where everything goes up and then there's no bid. That's sort of what he talks about is this, once the f outflows come, I don't know, it could be five years from now, who knows, but then who's the bidder of that stock? Everyone's going to short it all on top of Vanguard because the outflows will come and it's just like, boom, it, they're creating their own future demise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, one of the things, uh, you know, that I've just heard about the long short model in general, like biggest structural changes in between, let's say now and 10 years ago or 15 years ago, mm -hmm. is that the the amount that one manager might hold um, kind of of the outstanding, uh, you know, float in terms of short, like the, the short positions are just much, much higher than they used to be, right? Like managers used to worry about being short one or 2% or something of the float. And now like one manager could be short 15% of an entire uh, stock's outstanding flow and that that's just really risky and that's how you see these gigantic blow-ups and, and then the other thing too that's really challenging from a long short business model is that you know you aren't getting any interest right there there are no interest rates so when you're shorting mm -hmm. right you essentially don't get that premium anymore so i don't know man it, it's tough it's tough and combine that with the fact that a lot of these bigger shops they're moving further and further into quant and they have these resources that they can you know, hire these really smart guys and like build these fancy trading algorithms. And mm -hmm. it, you're, you're kind of starting to see a uh, performance centralized around the biggest names as well, which is, yeah, which is not great either. Uh, it's tough to be a long short manager right now, I think. Right. Um, and the, the other, yeah. the smart ones are all going to the private equity growth stuff. Now they're, they're doing all the pipe, right. pipe deals and, or they're going to crypto. Yeah. Or crypto really. That's where everyone's kind of, it's not a, it's sort of becoming mainstream where it's like you have to have a percent exposure there or some other hedge fund's going to outperform you. Right. Maybe more. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I still think the best strategy in crypto overall, it's like the easiest alpha anyone can do it. Just go out and buy up these like little projects and just hold them forever. <laughs> and, you know, probably less than 99 out of 100, maybe 90 out of 100 go to zero. But the ones that make it, if you just hold it for 10 years, you're going to like 10,000 X. I listened to this crazy interview. I probably reference this podcast too much now. But it's called Up Only. Uh, this guy, you brought on one of who I think is probably one of the most successful investors in crypto in general. It's this guy, Konstantin Lomashuk. Just this like regular yeah, guy who was just paying attention to this space put money in it and you know he got in in like the ethereum pre-sale and never sold wow. and he did that with other tokens he, he at one point he estimated he was up fifty thousand x since he started investing <laughs> he's so the greatest investor in history actually like 
in history. Yeah, yeah by strictly percentage. Yeah. yeah. Who killed I mean, that, Warren like, Buffett? <laughs> smoked yeah. them. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I don't know. I think those opportunities are still available. Uh, there's probably a bias towards doing stuff, which is why so many investors like try to trade this, and then they just get smoked. Mm. Uh, but I think if you just literally adopted a buy and hold long-term attitude and you just held through just backbreaking volatility, I think you'd do really yeah. well. Uh, I, I agree so. with that. I, I took a couple swings. I got I got a couple uh, bets on uh Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, yeah. buddy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll shell our bags at the okay. end of this. Um, all right, so uh, third to last story here, which I actually think is pretty interesting, and I would just genuinely love your take on this, but there's already been, um, so there was another board seat that got picked up on Exxon. This is the third board seat that's held by an activist investor. Uh, so basically, uh, Exxon said on Wednesday that an updated vote count showed shareholders backed a third nominee of engine number one. This is an upstart hedge fund that had already won two board seats at Exxon's annual shareholder meeting last week. The final vote hasn't been certified and could take a couple of days or weeks, according to the Wall Street Journal. Um, so, you know, I think what's interesting here is just, and, and this is kind of amid broader concerns about ESG and, and climate change, uh, and Exxon still having petroleum and, and gas basically at the forefront of their strategy. Uh, so talk a little bit about this. What, what do you think about these uh, kind of active, um, you know, investors getting getting board seats on Exxon here? And what, is this, what does this mean? Well, this is another centralization thing is when you are right. Vanguard or, or BlackRock and you, you now have to abide by these new uh, social kind of like justice issues then that flows through your holdings now. And that's a fascinating thing because if Exxon's business model really changes, Exxon provides a crap ton of oil to the market. And right. if they're not exploring, constantly exploring and pumping, there could be a unintended consequence of supply dropping. And, you know, Black, Exxon's not the only one that BlackRock and Vanguard and all these giant mega corporations own, you know? So if all those board seats get replaced for, for climate change and they immediately have to change business models, we could be in for like a oil super cycle. Um, and, and yeah. And, and just to, just to connect the dots there for those in the audience. Uh, so BlackRock and Vanguard, presumably the largest shareholders of Exxon. So basically, the idea that they this activist hedge fund got engine number one or whatever got another a third board seat that it's the implicit or explicit backing of the larger shareholders, which are these uh, big index funds, and they all have ESG and kind of green mandates. Is that the yeah? Idea? That's essentially how it works. And if you know, if you were at the whim of like a a social kind of sway, like I'm all for client, you know, ESG, and I think it's all great, but like. What happens to your average consumer if oil prices double? You know, people are going to be pissed. You know, you need to do this stuff gradually. So maybe that maybe that's what they will do and give long enough, um, you know, timeline to to take the supply down. But yeah, there there's lots of ramifications now. Like the having social ESG mandates will create massive opportunities. It's going to create massive misallocations of capital, but here's one opportunity. The guy, my buddy Harris Kupperman, Cuppy, he's saying, if you look at the the oil futures curve, 
a year ago, it was steeply in contango, meaning the price today was is cheaper than the price in the future. Right now, today, a year later, it's in backwardation for years. So right. essentially you could buy oil futures out in 2025 and it's cheaper than it is today because everyone anticipates this oil glut still. And if stuff like this is happening on the board of Exxon and we're kind of like getting away from oil across the board because all these centralized players need to have ESG mandates at all these oil and gas companies, that's a risk reward that that's interesting if you're playing oil. Now, uh, you also have to not care about climate change too if you're going to play that. But you know, it, it it's you're just bringing up like it's a tit for tat type thing. But there are going to be great opportunities to take advantage of because of it. Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is back. Um, you know, it, when when we were all hearing in the beginning of the pandemic, there was steep contango, which meant that the market in general thought price of oil is going up from here. Right now, backwardation is the opposite of that. So people generally think that in the future, oil is going to be cheaper than it is today. And I guess what you're saying is like these kind of rumblings of uh, being activist investors and ESG concerns is actually going to limit production uh, from big companies like Exxon. So there could be a mispricing, essentially. The market is mispricing oil uh, a couple of years out. Is that kind of the idea? Potentially, or the ESG works and like demand for oil falls and, you know, hooray capitalism, hooray, you know, activists. I don't know the answer, but if, if that's what yeah. happens, that's great. But I, I tend to think when you're pushed as a giant corporation because of social issues that things don't work out quite how we expect. And mm -hmm. here's another interesting thing what's, what's going to happen is I don't know if you saw Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are doing like a, a uranium project now together. This is the next big thing. I did not. Like if, if we get super ESG pickup, uranium is going to go bonkers. And as a disclosure, my like biggest personal position besides like Bitcoin is, is CCJ Camico. You are Yeah, no, I, I went just super just Camico, one of the biggest oil, I bet, uranium uh, producers. And that thing's been on like a frozen rope upwards. But I think that's the winner in all this is, is there's such a supply dearth there and you're going to, it's green, it's green energy and everyone's going to have to go that route. Yeah, I think you might, I think you might be right. I, I actually got to give it to, uh, Eric uh, Eric Townsend over at Macro Voices, who has been talking about uranium for the last like six months. Yeah. <laughs> um, not a bad call, Eric. Yeah. Um, shout out. Uh, the, you know, the other, uh, I think the last thing to just talk about here before we move on to our last story is people generally don't think about precedent when they think about decisions happening. So, you know, when, when Trump got booted off social media, the, the way that most people understood what was happening or what the way they formed their opinions is oh i don't like trump therefore him being removed from social media is a good mm -hmm. thing when in my opinion the right way to think about that is precedent of social media platforms essentially having that much power and i completely understand why in the moment uh people react the way that they do but if you're a student of history you can look and see precedent is really really important i'm like i've talked about this, we have this on the court, show before right? but you never <laughs> right yeah seriously and 
I, I think, uh, you know, everyone usually agrees with the first thing, right? Everyone agrees with the first one. So Trump, a lot of people, honestly, myself included, I was sick of seeing that guy on Twitter. <laughs> I was sick of it. Um, I was just, it just killed yeah. me, man, to see this big pumpkin tweeting about stuff. But I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I actually don't think I supported that decision because it's dangerous for social media platforms to be able to set the truth. And, and, and by the way, Here's a great example, a counter example to that is actually the stuff that's coming out Zero about, uh, you know, Fauci and yeah, Zero Hedge and the origin of the yeah. virus. And I think that's a great example, like counter example of how when you centralize power and, you know, when I think about now, like index funds and the power that index funds have, uh, you know, it's funny, Matt Levine has argued for a long time, it's been his shtick, index funds should be illegal. Where is the power? Where are the locus? Where are the loci of power forming in the United States now? And it's like index funds and it's social media companies. And I really don't think that enough attention is being paid to how much power these entities really have over markets, over how people think, over how information is yeah. delivered to us. I'm just observing it as a thing. And right now, everyone's like, rah, rah, good. ESG, I can get behind that. Let's. We all live on this planet. It's a very important thing. I'm just saying it's usually the first decision that's popular. Second one, maybe not so much. Third one, you're like, oof, now I really wish I hadn't surrendered so much control uh, to these guys. What we're watching is just when you it, – it's centralization. But like if you want to simple it down to just like sports, think about what happens yeah. when you get LeBron and Shaq and D-Wade and you know all these like superstars on one team. Then everybody's gunning for them. That's basically what you've created. Right. And inevitably you age, you calcify, you get older. And, you know, as day goes to night, they they will pay their price and they'll look like idiots in history. Like I think they'll look like giant egos who couldn't stop growing out of like spin it off. Create a different entity. You know, when you have that centralized power, George Gilder uh talks about this in life after google he goes after like the centralized mm -hmm. players and basically is saying you're creating like something that is the antithesis of human nature like it's just control and that's sort of what happens when you have giant scalable you have huge scalable asset managers and huge scalable you know information there's only one way that can go and maybe that's five years from now i don't know the timeline i think it's closer than we think but it's gonna happen like our generation already knows all the the tricks and everything like no one trusts mark zuckerberg right who trusts mark zuckerberg yeah remember when remember when remember when facebook tried to roll out portal and it was gonna be this thing that lived in your house and you were like dude yeah. are you kidding me <laughs> everyone was like no way facebook like apple does it well i gotta give it to apple you know you know oh yeah yeah, yeah. smart Wow, what a great decision it was to yeah. lean into privacy. What what a great strategy. I'm not going to say, wow, that was very altruistic of them. I don't think there was. I just think it was a good yeah. business strategy and there'll be positive externalities. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. And you know what? The, the kicker on top of the whole thing is it's actually good for everyone. It usually creates shareholder value when these things get broken up. If you look at Bell, the telecom corporation, they got broke up and it created... You know, AT&T and whichever other companies. And it was actually, you know, it's kind of like a gestalt. It's like the sum is worth more than yeah. the sum. The whole is worth more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. It's the opposite of that, actually. <laughs> Never mind. I rescind that. I rescind that example. 
But you know what I mean? It's like, oh, totally like, like if you sp- okay, don't, don't fool me again. <laughs> Sounded like George Bush there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Ooh. Jesus. Don't put that on me. Uh, well, let me, let me give you like, if Amazon spun out Amazon web services, which company do you think is more valuable? I don't know the fundamentals that well, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe web services? I don't know. Yeah. They're at least even, right? More of the more of the operating margin for Amazon now comes from uh, comes from Amazon Web Services than Amazon. Despite I forget, it's like a vast majority of the revenue comes from the legacy mm-hmm. e-commerce business, but most of the profits come from Amazon Web Services. So I don't know. I don't know. Just be interesting. You know what's crazy? I've, I've heard. Have you heard of this? Where like the web services are getting disrupted by decentralization because like I could lend out the spare. It's like Filecoin, right? You can lend out the spare capacity on your computer yeah for a value so why would you need amazon web services yeah like, i i think, I think that's thing. that i think will probably be the big driving narrative of the next wave of crypto uh, i think right now it's all about disrupting financial services to me the actual bigger disruptive potential of crypto in general is social media it always has been because social media is like the fastest growing you know, it's the most profitable engine on earth. Like if you look at the businesses that uh, Facebook and Google built, they're these crazy monopolies. They're, they're I mean, mm-hmm. Google's like the most ridiculous monopoly of all time, right? Uh, you know, it's one of the best yeah. uh, cash flow generating engines the world has ever seen. Uh, the thing is, I, I think you can kind of start to see it. Even Google, the product has been less and less good recently. The amount of ads that you get served now on Google and it's starting to be less good also to be like just a website anymore because mm-hmm. you know there's this AMP thing that Google does. So if you're, you know when you search something and then it kind of comes up with those little windows and you kind of scroll through and if you actually click on it, it's not taking you outside of Google's platform anymore. You know, that's like the AMP mm. link. Yeah, so, you know, these things are gonna get disrupted. <laughs> like I'm, I, I really think that the big disruption is actually not going to come from financial services as much as social media web services in general. It's a fundamental re-architecturing of the web is what crypto is. Yeah. The bigger use case, in my opinion. I can't Um, wait for it. Me either, man. Me either. Let's talk about uh, this last story. Again, it's not even really a story. I know you said you were writing about this. Bloomberg just put together this really good article basically measuring the wealth of uh, millennials. Uh, And they, they compared it to... Uh, boomers uh, at 40, Gen X at 40, and millennials at 40. And honestly, they used a lot of the stuff that you and I have talked about on this podcast before. So they measured it across three different dimensions. They measured it across median income, median wealth, and median debt. Uh, and if you look at this this chart, which maybe we can actually show for the, for the folks who are watching this on video, you can actually see that median income at 40 uh, is pretty stagnant. What's really different is median wealth uh, and median debt. So obviously millennials have a much, much higher, almost by a factor of two, uh, more debt uh, than boomers did at 40. Uh, and their net worth is actually much less as well. And that's kind of been falling across the generations. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, I, I just think the big, all, all roads for me lead back to income inequality and you see it, uh, you know, there's a lot of political narrative around this being divided geopolitically, and there's kind of this US versus China thing going on right now, but I don't think that's the story. I think it gets divided across class, uh, and I think it gets divided across generations, to be totally honest. And I think the generational story is starting to seep into pop culture. Like there was that SNL skit 
uh, a little yeah. while ago that was making fun of like the boomers and then there was I was watching Hacks this show on HBO and there was this rant that this millennial because you know the whole thing is like oh you millennials with your avocado toast and it's so yeah. condescending it's so ridiculously <laughs> condescending uh, you know well because, I think you're right the tide's turning tide it's is so turning, turning. Yeah. yeah. And every I've every morning there's two or three of these articles from mainstream things. Right. Now. Like Wall Street Journal had like four articles about housing being like overtaken by giant institutions and how like the buyer of your house next door is probably like a Russian oligarch or, you know, a, a or fund Canadian fund. pension fund. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, those Canadian pension funds own everything. Is that freaking nuts, man? Imagine losing. Like, man, I really wanted to get this house. Who ended up getting it instead? A pension fund. Who's living in yeah. those houses, by the way? They're bidding on residential. What's yeah. going on there? Are there are there pension funds? Are they renting it out? What's happening? I don't know. They must be renting it out, but it's just it yeah. They, they need yield, bro. Every it's you know the globalization. You just end up controlling everything. So yeah. Yeah. But here, here's a great. You'll you'll love this one. Speaking of housing, 13D had this. They they said, meanwhile, in what may be the biggest but least talked about story in real estate, construction of new starter homes has hit a 50 year low. In the late 1970s, the U.S. was building 418,000 entry-level homes per year. By the 2010s, that number had fallen to 55,000. Today, less than 10% of new homes being built are starter homes. So we're just servicing like the high net worth. The, when you have mega institutions, the only thing that moves bottom line is servicing like mega wealthy people. Like you don't care about the bottom of the barrel and, and therein lies all the social discord. You're only strong as your weakest link and we're like just choosing winners in society and instead of like making it a meritocracy and like keeping everybody in the same game and like, yeah. At the end of the day, the king and the pawn have to go back in the same box, right? Yeah. I think a lot of this comes down to, so one externality I think that happened from the Trump presidency is that he refocused the political attention in the U.S. back to kind of domestic problems at home. And specifically, he found this voice of people who are being pretty much ignored, which is the middle class. And it's been kind of common knowledge. People say, yeah, the middle class doesn't exist like it used to. And... You know, that that should be kind of a front and center problem that needs to be solved because that was the American playbook, the middle mm -hmm. class. And, you know, what 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 proponents of globalization say, and to some extent, I agree with them. It's like we're not going to solve the problems that we have with income inequality by bringing back these crap kind of jobs from China and Vietnam. Right. That, that's not actually really going to help to bring back really crappy, low paying jobs. The, the answer is, is much harder, I think. The, the answer is like people define their happiness uh, based on purpose. They need to see forward progress in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think a lot about like the moon landing. I've probably referenced this on the show before, but, you know, there's this great show on Apple TV for all mankind. And, you know, not having been alive, obviously, when the original moon landing took place, I didn't really fully understand the significance of it, but it was this tangible thing that the US said we're gonna do this crazy nuts thing, like we're gonna land on the moon. And then they actually did it. And it just inspires you with this sense of freaking pride to be an American and be like, I can do anything. And we're just so completely missing that, I think, yeah. today. 
Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I don't, that, that's a harder answer, right? That's a harder answer. But if the answer isn't just, hey, let's bring back these crappy low paying jobs that we, that we outsource. It needs to be something more along the lines of like, how do we empower the people in this nation to feel like they're, they're making forward progress in their own lives? I don't know. I think you can only do it at a, at a small company or a company that's solving a big problem at a big company, you know, and the rest of them are just, I, they're like rentiers, like that Henry George, like they're just, they're stealing wealth from another pocket of America, but you need a real leader to say like, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And then have everyone inspired to pursue that. And there's yeah. nobody, the the ones we have in our generation are like fucking Adam Newman, who are just sociopaths, you know, and, and you, there's no, where are the real leaders that like, people are like, not, those types of guys want, they're like, please follow me, you know, I'm a beta male that's like, you know, in desperate need of attention, and I want you to, you know, love me. And instead of those people that are like, I'm going this way. If you guys want to come, that's great. Like, let's go. You know, Pomp has a little bit of vibe like that, where it's like, I don't think he's like a narcissist guy, but he's like, we're doing this for the right reasons. And I love that. Yeah. And there's very few of those people in our generation. Yeah. Did I just get... I think there were... Yeah, no, but I'm with you. You know what you need, what unites people is uh, like a common goal and an outside threat, basically. And I think we're halfway there, right? There are these cheap political points to be one bashing China, yeah. essentially. I, I'm not saying, like, look, who, who knows? I actually don't have a super uh, well-formed opinion on this, to be totally honest. Um, it seems like there are two bipartisan issues, or two bipartisan things that everyone in the US can agree on, uh, spend a lot of money and China is bad. And I think you're kind of missing a lot of the point because if you just have the China is bad, that's not really productive, right? You need a goal. You need something to unite around, something that everyone can like move forward to together that we agree on also maybe with the outside threat because that's just been proven to psychologically help people unite. I don't know. Yeah. But if you just say, hey, China's the enemy and everyone in the US is good, you're, that's not gonna cut it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think. I agree. I think space is the next yeah. frontier. It's good. I agree. I'm, yeah. I'm literally, I agree with you. And you know what the uh, you know we talked about UFOs on this on this podcast. Uh, I listened to uh, Grant Williams talking about this, and you know he was talking about you know my immediate thought when uh, you know I'm hearing about these UFOs is why now? Why am I now hearing about these UFOs? And I kind of agree with him. Like why are we hearing about these now? Like a lot of trouble going on in the U.S. Like why are we hearing about UFOs right now? Sure. He's probably right. Whatever, man. What? Who cares? Okay. Yeah. Are the UFOs actually there? Okay. Is this like a ploy to make everyone feel united? I don't care. Is it going to work? I hope so. Yeah, please. Let's unite again. Yeah. yeah. Like, hey, we're all humans, you know? That would be, man. I think they went back to scrolling on Instagram on like stupid stuff. They're like, oh, aliens? Well, eh, whatever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they were like, yeah. Can you imagine being the guy, you know, if he's in charge of this? Like, all right. We gotta release something that's really gonna capture the national attention. <laughs> what could be bigger than UFOs? And then he releases it. Like, are you kidding? Dude, like, are you kidding? Before me? just twenty years ago, if they released that, you know how crazy it would have been. It would have been like mainstream news. Everyone would have been talking about it. 
like, oh my God, did you hear about the new UFO off the Pacific? You know, they would be diagnosing these things. Everyone just like, scroll, yeah. scroll, scroll. My attention span sucks. Uh, okay, UFOs? Uh, see you later. Let's go, let's yeah. go back to, uh, and now, you know, whatever. Let's, let's go back to how Elon tweeted a meme and uh, Bitcoin is down 5%. Yeah. Or Mayweather fighting like Logan Paul. It was like, great guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I actually forgot. I had to look up. I Jake Paul, Logan Paul. I guess those two are brothers. Yeah, I, I don't know. Didn't realize there were two of them. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, hey, maybe there is hope. <laughs> if there's guys like you and me that just don't care about social media followings, who knows? Couldn't care less, yeah. dude. Couldn't care less. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, you know. I don't know. At the end of the day, I, I think, uh, yeah, we do need to figure out some way to unite as a country. I've, I always have thought the, the biggest enemy that anything, a company, family, country, whatever it is, faces internal division. Like, you got to solve that before you solve anything else, I think. But Yeah. All right, now that we've expounded and put our little philosopher caps on, uh, you yeah. know, what are, what are you up for this, uh, this weekend? That's a great ex existential episode right there. That was, uh, yeah, that wasn't bad. Yeah, you and me, there's, you know what I'm always reminded of whenever anyone brings up philosophy is there's this great, you know, The Onion? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a great, there's a great title, an Onion article, which is, Guy in philosophy class needs to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. It's probably one of the best onion articles of all time. Somebody get me a muzzle. <laughs> yeah, somebody do. Um, yeah, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, I, I have a friend's uh, birthday party I'm hosting here. You know, we've got this outdoor space. So this is actually the second uh, birthday party that I've hosted at this place. Um, we got like, nice. 12 noise complaints at the last one. So... Hoping wow. to just get six this time. That'd be major yeah. improvement. Uh, and you got a great power washed patio, man. I did, yeah, I, I got to power wash it again. It's already dirty. Yeah. It's already dirty. It's like two <laughs> months in. It's like Jesus. I see why people play. hate keeping up with uh, cleaning stuff. Yeah. All right, man. Let's cut it there. I will see you cool. uh, same time next week. Take care. Later, man. Take care.